Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 3rd. In today's news, protesters defy curfews again, but tensions appear to ease in several cities. Tony Fauci says he's cautiously optimistic about a coronavirus vaccine in the pipeline. And Steve King goes down in Iowa. But first, the big idea. The scenes have been disturbingly familiar to CIA analysts accustomed to monitoring societies unraveling abroad. The massing of protesters, the ensuing crackdowns, and the awkwardly staged displays of strength by a leader determined to project authority. Current and former U.S. intelligence officials express dismay at the similarity between events at home and the signs of decline or democratic regression that they were trained to detect in other nations. Gail Helt, a former CIA analyst, said the images of unrest in American cities, combined with President Trump's incendiary statements, echo clashes she covered over a dozen years as an analyst tracking developments in China, Malaysia, and elsewhere across Southeast Asia. Gail said she's unnerved because this is what autocrats do, and it's usually what happens before a collapse. Mark Polymaradopoulos, who formerly ran CIA operations in Europe and Asia, was among several former agency officials who recoiled at images of Trump hoisting a Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church across the street from the White House after authorities fired rubber bullets and tear gas to clear the president's path of protesters. Mark said it reminded him of when he reported for years from the Third World. Referring to the despotic leaders of Iraq, Syria, and Libya, he said, Saddam, Bashar, Gaddafi, they all did this. The impression Trump created was only reinforced by others in the administration. Defense Secretary Mark Esper urged governors on a conference call to, quote, dominate the battle space surrounding protesters, as if describing U.S. cities like some kind of foreign war zone. Later, as military helicopters hovered menacingly over protesters, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, toward the streets of the nation's capital in his battle fatigue uniform. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat from Virginia, worked at Langley on issues including terrorism and nuclear proliferation. She said as a former CIA officer, she knows the Trump playbook all too well. Another U.S. intelligence official, a current official, ventured into downtown D.C. on Monday night as if taking measure of the street-level mood in a foreign country. The official told my colleague Greg Miller that he was there amid the escalation, not in his government capacity, but as a concerned citizen. After seeing tear gas canisters underfoot, he said he knew it was time to go home. Former intelligence officials say the unrest and the administration's militaristic response are among many measures of decay that they would flag if writing assessments about the United States for another country's intelligence service. They cite our country's struggle to contain the novel coronavirus, this president's attempt to pressure Ukraine for political favors, his attacks on the news media, and the increasingly polarized political climate. All are signs of dysfunction. In recent years, U.S. officials have urged restraint or denounced crackdowns against protesters or vulnerable groups from Russia to Iran to Turkey, Malaysia, Syria, and so many other countries. Brett McGurk, the former top U.S. envoy to the Middle East, who spent two years in the Trump administration and is now teaching at Stanford, says the president's words will only embolden the world's autocrats and severely undermine U.S. moral authority. 
Brett worries that the militaristic crackdowns in the capital will make it much more difficult for us to distinguish ourselves from other countries that we're trying to contest for influence, especially China and Russia. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, as many as 2,000 demonstrators descended on downtown Washington last night, the largest and most boisterous crowd to gather in the nation's capital during five straight nights of protests, banging on tall fences erected outside the White House and marching through the city to the Capitol. The largely peaceful protesters included high schoolers and stay-at-home moms, young parents with their toddlers, elderly couples who were immunocompromised but said it was too important to stay home, and large families coming to check it all out. But tensions did flare at multiple flashpoints during the day as protesters faced a much larger contingent of federal law enforcement authorities than they did on Monday. Some turbulent gatherings were hit with pepper spray and other shows of force. Armored vehicles blocked many city streets. As the 7 p.m. curfew passed, protesters remained peaceful and authorities did not take any action. But by nightfall, many families had left and the crowd had thinned to a much younger, more volatile group. That increased tensions. Some began throwing water bottles and shaking the fences as helicopters, Blackhawks, swirled overhead and the number of federal officers swelled. Some protesters tried to stop the agitators, yelling, this is a peaceful protest. One of the largest peaceful protests yesterday was in George Floyd's hometown of Houston. There were 25,000 marchers in the streets, including the mayor, Sylvester Turner. Some of the childhood friends of George Floyd and a group of black cowboys on horseback were also there. It stayed peaceful. In New Orleans, a police commander urged protesters to leave a highway bridge that they had occupied. The commander got on a bullhorn to say, quote, We support you. We feel ashamed for what this officer in Minneapolis did to tarnish the badge. His message resonated. Protesters left the bridge and went home. In Atlanta, prosecutors have charged six police officers with crimes after they used stun guns on two unarmed black college students who were just driving on a downtown street. And in Philadelphia... The mayor criticized police officers for posing for photos with a group of white vigilantes who were carrying baseball bats and shovels. In New York, where looters have ransacked stores for several consecutive nights, including on Park Avenue in Manhattan, Governor Andrew Cuomo criticized New York police and Mayor Bill de Blasio for not doing enough to restore order. In New York, de Blasio has resisted calling in National Guard troops to help, and instead he's pleading with community leaders to stem the chaos. So far, that has been unsuccessful. And still, the protests keep growing. In Milwaukee, thousands marched six miles in early summer heat. People knelt on the cobblestone streets of Nantucket. They marched in Morgantown, West Virginia, and they crowded around the police headquarters in El Paso. In many cases, protesters repeated Floyd's last words, I can't breathe. The fires and looting, fortunately, have largely stopped across Minneapolis and St. Paul. While protests continue in the Twin Cities, they have now been largely peaceful. State officials said 120 arrests were made Monday night and into early Tuesday, mostly protesters violating that region's 10 p.m. curfew. All were taken into custody without incident. Folks on the ground in my hometown say there has been a real temperature change. That's good news. Number two. We can't forget the coronavirus. (laughs) As confirmed infections in America surpassed 1.8 million yesterday, Tony Fauci said last night that he is cautiously optimistic about the latest data on a potential new vaccine. 
The director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases said he's feeling good about the latest research from Moderna on its potential vaccine, which is entering its second round of clinical trials. Phase three of the trial will begin in July and will include the study of thousands of humans who will be as young as 18. Fauci says the trial will include primarily U.S. sites, but also include international sites enrolling 30,000 individuals in a randomized placebo-controlled trial of the Moderna vaccine. Phase three is the final stage before approval by the FDA, which would make it available for patients across the country. And we continue to get sad reports about the contagion. People are still dying every day. And nearly 600 workers at a Tyson food pork processing plant in Storm Lake, Iowa, have just tested positive for the virus. That's a quarter of the 2,300 workers at the facility. And it's a reminder of how dangerous it is for companies to fully bring everyone back to work. Meanwhile, the Commonwealth of Virginia is moving to its next phase of reopening on Friday, allowing indoor dining at half capacity and gyms and fitness centers to open at 30% capacity. And the University of Southern California announced yesterday that it will resume in-person classes this fall. Number three, politics continues as well. Congressman Steve King, the Republican from Iowa, lost a primary challenge from the establishment wing of the party last night, making him the first member of Congress to be toppled in 2020. Support for King started to evaporate last year after he made racist remarks that forced national Republicans to distance themselves from the conservative firebrand. He said he didn't understand why the term white nationalist or white supremacist was offensive. That gave an opening to state Senator Randy Feenstra, who garnered support from national GOP groups and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. These folks argued that King had undermined his influence in Washington with his drumbeat of provocative behavior. Republican leaders in the House had kicked him off the Agriculture Committee, which was highlighted in a lot of attack ads. Feenstra won by nine points. And in other election night news, Ferguson, Missouri, elected its first black mayor. Ella Jones, a Democrat, will not only be the first black mayor, but also the first woman to lead that city. It's been six years now since Ferguson erupted in mass protests over the death of black teenager Michael Brown. It's a reminder that things can change especially at the ballot box. Consider this. A brand new poll from Monmouth University finds that 57% of Americans now believe that police are more likely to use excessive force against black people. That represents an increase from 34% who said the same in 2016 after the police shooting of Alton Sterling in Louisiana, and the 33% who said so in 2014 after a grand jury decided not to indict a New York police officer in the death of Eric Garner. His last words also were, I can't breathe. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 3rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.